0: Uh, 2 Samuel chapter number 4, a shorter chapter in terms of verses. Uh, So let's look together at all 12 of these tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 4, the title of the message is The Death of the Puppet King. The Death of the Puppet King. Verse 1, chapter 4. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Ramon, the of the children of Benjamin. For Baroth also was part of Benjamin because of the Barothites who fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Then the sons of Ramon the Barothite, Rechab and Bana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ish-bosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth." the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Barothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news. I arrested him and had him executed in Ziglag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. Well, since we opened up 2 Samuel, we have seen a long civil war going on between the house of Saul and the house of David. After Saul's death, instead of affirming what God had chosen in David as the next king of Israel, Saul's right hand man, his chief commander of the armor, a man by the name of Abner, made Ishbosheth. Saul's only living son, the king of Israel. He did this against the will of God, for Abner knew that God had chosen David to be king, but he resisted at the time. And so the people were divided. The true tribe of Judah anointed and followed David as the rightful king, while the rest of Israel acknowledged Ishbosheth as king. Now, of course, a lot. Has happened since we opened up 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we don't have time to review all of it. But fast forward a little bit quickly with me, and we'll be reminded that all the house of David is growing stronger while the house of Saul is becoming weaker. Even Abner, the one pulling the puppet strings, if you will, of Ishbosheth, changes sides back in chapter 3 and he commits to uniting Israel under the kingship of David. Of course we understand his result when Joab was jealous of the fact that David had made things right with Abner and Abner with David and so Joab took it upon himself to act out in a way that was unlike the king and he killed Abner. Why did he kill Abner? Well, because Abner killed his brother. And so this whole mess is going on within the kingdom. And we look at this and we wonder, what in the world is God doing? And how is it that he's going to accomplish his kingdom purposes through all of this debacle? But before we dive into our text tonight, I want us to just be reminded of something that we have brought up through the first few chapters of 2 Samuel. And that is the reminder that the establishment and advancement of God's kingdom depends on God, not on human efforts. That's so very important, and we see that unfolding before us. The establishment and advancement of God's kingdom, it depends on God, not on human efforts. In other words... We will never be good enough. We aren't good enough. We aren't powerful enough. We aren't wise enough to build God's kingdom in our human strength with our strategies and efforts. It's important that we understand that because so many strive, especially in ministry, for the ultimate goal of success. Success. We want Success And they believe that success is the measure of all things, but not according to God. You see, it is righteousness and faithfulness that God requires, not so much success from an earthly standpoint. Again, I bring this up because woven in this story are battles between men like Abner and Joab and others who are depending upon human effort to secure and establish the kingdom. And it was often at the neglect of righteousness. How many times was that opportunity afforded in 1 Samuel to David to take care of Saul himself? And he refused Because he understood that God would fulfill his promise in his timing. And it was not his responsibility to take matters into his own hands. And through his strength and effort achieve the throne. No, he waited on God. He chose the path of faithfulness and righteousness and patience. And we saw there were some moments where David even struggled with that. But in the end he overcame. But here we are right here in 2 Samuel and it seems even those surrounded by David and now with Abner and these two men that we're going to read about tonight who switch sides and come over to David. Everybody is about securing the throne and advancing the kingdom and establishing David's kingship by what they can contribute in making it happen. And we look back from this and are reminded of some very important things that it. Is God who establishes and advances his kingdom? It is not human effort. It does not depend on our intelligence, our gifts, our skills, our actions. It is God who does it. It's exactly what we read of Zerubbabel in the book of Zechariah. Not by might, not by strength, God says, but by my. Spirit, this has been done. If we look in our own lives. It's not because of our efforts that God has brought us this far. It's not our strength. It's not our might. It's God who has done this. And anything that we see unfolding, even with its being used with people we don't think God would use, or even when it's in scenarios that seem pretty good. We are reminded that it is God who does the work, and God brings together whom he chooses to establish and advance his kingdom. Now, let me just say one other word here about success, and this goes not only in church ministry, but in the whole realm of Christian life and what we do on a day-to-day basis, and that is righteousness will always be greater than success. Righteousness will always be greater than success. We're going to read about some more men here in chapter 4 who are trying to achieve success on behalf of David. But in the end, we are reminded that righteousness is greater than success as it is in all of our lives. So this, once again, is at the forefront of our Narrative. Let, let's look at three things from the chapter one. We see first the disintegration of Saul's house. The disintegration of Saul's house. That's verses one through four. Look at verse one. Uh, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel also was troubled. Uh, this was a difficult thing for Ishbosheth, because Abner was everything to him. Remember, it was Ishbosheth bosheth who was the puppet king, and Abner was the one pulling all the strings. Abner was the one responsible for putting Ish-bosheth on the throne, and in terms of running the kingdom, that that was all Abner. Of course, it's true that Abner had defected, and as we saw in the previous chapter, he turned to David's side by this point in the narrative. But any hope on Ishbosheth's part for a redeemed return on behalf of Abner was now over. Because Abner is dead. And Ishbosheth, as a result, is falling apart. He's lost heart. Now, I, I think Ishbosheth most likely senses that he's probably next. <laughs> After all, he's the weak one in this relationship. He's the the puppet. Abner was the one calling the shots, putting him on the throne, convincing everybody that this was the plan of God. He's pulling the strings. Now, if the great and mighty commander of his father's army, Abner, is dead, perhaps this is thinking in his own mind, well, if they got Abner, they're surely coming after me. So he's troubled He's terrified. The text says he's lost heart. But again, why? Is it death itself that surrounded this fear and trepidation on his bosheth? part. Now I give you this to consider. I think at the heart of it, Ishbosheth, was trusting in man. And that is why we see him so troubled. He's lost heart because his hope was in man. He has no courage because his faith was in man. He fears what may come upon him in the context of his kingship. Because he was not looking to God and putting his confidence in God. It was in Abner that he Trusted. I believe this is what the heart of Ishbosheth's trouble was. He's trusting in man, the one in whom he had depended on everything for, was now dead. The object of his trust, the object of his hope, Abner, has passed. It begs the question this evening: Where is your hope tonight? What are you trusting in? Who? Is fear a dominant characteristic of your life because all of your hope, faith and trust is wrapped up in the strength of men? Or is it in the strength of God? He's lost heart. He's troubled, not only himself, but it says here in verse 1 that all of Israel is troubled as well. Why? Because the house of Saul was disintegrating. All all they seemed to have left was a weak and quivering king. And now, a terrified people. Of course, the narrator briefly throws in in verse 4 the mention of Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. But look at it there in verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. That's just fun to say. Mephibosheth. Everybody say that with me. Ready? Mephibosheth. You like that, don't you? Mephibosheth. All the kids are in it. Say it with me. Ready, kids? Mephibosheth. Thank you. Thank you, Asher. He's the one who's awake. Mephibosheth. Now, who was he? He was the last male descendant of Saul who, from an earthly understanding, had a strong legal claim to the throne. He was the only one left. But, but the narrator kind of throws in in verse 4 that at this time he's still relatively young to take on such a responsibility. It says he was five when Jonathan and Saul died. When you put in the chronology of time between the end of 1 Samuel and where we are in chapter 4, uh, we see that he would probably be somewhere around 12 years old at the time the events of chapter 4 are unfolding. We're also given the insight into his medical condition, his, his physical weakness. He was lame. Uh, perhaps unable to walk or even stand. We'll see more from him in a later chapter when we come to chapter 9, but I think the point in bringing him up now is to simply show us from the narrator's perspective that Ishbosheth, or, or excuse me, rather, that after Ishbosheth, this was it in terms of Saul's house. As far as Saul's house still having a foothold in the kingdom and continuing on what Abner had established after his Basha, that, that's it. All we have left at this point is Mephibosheth. And he doesn't seem neither appropriate in terms of age or perhaps with the ability to take on the role and the job. And so at this point we're introduced to two men. It brings us back to verse 2. It says Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The names of one was Benai, the name of the other Rechab. the sons of Ramon, the Barothite of the children of Benjamin, for Baroth also was part of Benjamin, because the Barothites fled to Getham and have been sojourners there until this day. I think in a really strange way, we are introduced to these two men out of nowhere as if they were Ishbosheth's last and best hope. That that seems to what it seems to be unfolding before us, all right? The hall the house of Saul is disintegrating. We've already seen that in chapter 3. It's getting weaker and weaker. David's getting stronger and stronger. So let's look into the house of Saul. What's left? Well, we have Ishbosheth. Well, not anymore. Someone just stabbed him in the stomach. So he's gone. What about Mephibosheth? Well, I don't think he's quite fit and ready at this point to take the throne. Well, What about those other two captains? Maybe they learned some things from Abner. Could they not continue it on? I think that's what he's saying here. This was the son of Saul's best hope, these two men. They're his last hope, it seems. And the information about their background indicates that there was a family tie between them, thus the emphasis on being from the tribe of Benjamin, who also was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so all Saul's sons are from the tribe of Benjamin. They're kish, if you will. And so are these two men. So the first four verses simply reveal that Saul's house is disintegrating. And as stated in earlier chapters, it's growing weaker and weaker, while David's house is growing stronger and stronger. That leads us to the second header and brings us to verse 5. And that is the assassination of Ishbasha. The assassination of Ishbasha. Verse 5 The sons of Ramon, the Barothite, Rechab, and Bana, uh, The heat of the day. And they found him lying on his bed. Here it is at noon. I mean no respect, but these disrespect. But these two dudes who were just introduced to us decide that they're going to make a journey to Ishbosheth's house. Upon arrival, it becomes clear that Ishbosheth is taking a midday nap. Anybody get a midday nap this afternoon? If you're planning on taking one tomorrow, watch out before you go to bed. According to verse six, they appear to be on a mundane mission. They appear to be. Just going to get wheat, which was a common and regular thing. Verse 6 they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. So it doesn't appear that these guys are a problem. It doesn't seem that they are a threat. They're kinsmen to Ishbosheth, they're kish, they're from the tribe of Benjamin, family men here. So on the surface, there's no reason to expect anything more for coming into the house than to carry out a wheat run, which was common, which was a normal thing for close acquaintances, which is why we don't see anybody making any issues about them coming into the king's house to get weak. This was normal. But here's what happened. You see, the rest of verse 6, they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and while they were there, they stabbed him in the stomach. I almost titled the message, Stomach Pains. They stabbed him in the stomach. This seems so bizarre to me. What what in the world is going on here? Because at the moment, at the moment, when we're just reading this consecutively, we have no context for this. We don't know where these guys came from. We don't know what the problem with the wheat is. There's no apparent issue here. And there's no apparent reservation on the part of these two guys for what they just did. They walk in the house as if they're going to get some food. And they just so happen to go into his bedroom and stab him while he's sleeping in the middle of the day. In the stomach. So bizarre. A cold-blooded, unexpected assassination of a king. And then we read at the end of verse 6 that they ran for it. They escaped. Now verse 7 and 8 rehearses what just happened with greater detail. Look at it in verse 7. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. So they struck him and killed him. Then, this is new information here, they beheaded him, took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. So here's what we know. We know that they not only stabbed him in the stomach, but they beheaded him. I don't know what the deal is with all this beheading in Samuel, but it obviously was a popular thing. From Goliath to Abner to all of them, everybody can't seem to keep their heads up. So he gets stabbed, and the guys decide they're going to behead him. Not only that, they travel all night to Hebron to where... David was and I I don't know if this is just how my mind works but I'm thinking well how did that go down did they bring a box to put the head in did it have wheels or did they just take turns carrying it did he have long, luscious hair where they could just hold it while they're walking through the plain on the way to Hebron? I don't know how this went down. Who decided to do what? Maybe halfway through it, one of them looks at the other and says, I told you we should have left the head back. This was ridiculous. Why are we dragging this head all the way to Hebron? I don't know what the conversations were. I don't know what the circumstance, whether they had a box or it was just held in their hands. But they're carrying a head all the way back to David. And when they get there with the head of Ishbosheth in their hand, we see here that they address David as their king. At this point, the only people who were addressing David as their king was the tribe of Judah. They're not from the tribe of Judah. In fact, they are captains in Saul's army. Now they have the head of Saul's son, the king of Israel. They come to Hebron. They find David. They address him as their king. King. So apparently, what we didn't know when they went into the house to find wheat is that they had already made up their mind that they were going to abandon the house of Saul. And they come to David and they present the head of Ishbosheth to David like a trophy. It's like the Like the time that Walt finally got that rabbit in the backyard that he'd been barking at for months. I mean, when he finally got a hold of that rabbit the night before Easter Sunday, he runs to the back patio, he drops that rabbit, and he looks at us with his tail wagging like, clap for me. Look at what I did. And mama's over here, poor bunny rabbit. And I'm over here like, go get him, Walt, you know, and... That's what they do. They they walk up to David like, here it is. We got your enemy. Saul's descendants are now done. I'm sure you're pretty proud of us. These two brothers made a huge mistake. They assumed that this is what David wanted in terms of killing Saul's house. But as we've already stated, David had consistently in righteousness refused to treat Saul and his house as his enemy. He's refused to do that. And even though these brothers classified Saul and Esbosheth and the rest of Saul's house as his enemies in verse 8, that is never how David viewed it, which is why we see him mourning over Saul's death. Mourning over Abner. David was waiting on the Lord to establish his kingdom. He refused to take matters into his own hands and achieve success by earthly measures. And the worst part of this miscalculated presentation by Rechab and Bana was that they attributed the whole action as a gift from God. Look what God did for you through us. Did you see that there in verse 8? They come to David. Look at it. They come to David. They said to the king, Here's the head of this Look at what we did. The son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord, that is, God in heaven, has avenged our Lord, the king, David. This day of Saul and his descendants. They suggested that God had done this. Evil. Listen to me very carefully. An opportunity to do evil is never a gift from God. An opportunity to do evil is never a gift from God. That's not an open door. Never in our lives should we ever try to justify our wicked behavior, our sinful choices, as if God provided this opportunity for us. Listen to what James said, James chapter 1 verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. An opportunity to do evil is never a gift of God. And they made a major presumption here. A total miscalculation. And still we wonder why. Perhaps Abner's Decision and then subsequent death motivated them. In other words, we, we heard that Abner switched sides, and if Abner switched sides, then we better switch sides too. And and since they killed Abner, maybe, maybe that's what David wants. Maybe, maybe if we come back with the head of Isbasha, then we'll then we'll somewhat win over the king. Perhaps they they even themselves began to perceive the disintegration of Ishbosheth and the house of Saul. And they looked and said, look, we're on the losing end of this deal. We need to switch sides. But well, whatever the reason, here's what they chose, church family. They chose earthly success over godly righteousness. They chose success over righteousness. What can we do to help the king in our strength instead of living righteously and waiting on the Lord to accomplish his purposes? The assassination of the king. Here's the third and final header, the execution of the murderers. The execution of the murderers brings us to verse 9. David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Barothite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking they've brought me good news, I arrested that man. I had him executed in Ziglag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for what he did. How much more than would wicked men who have killed a righteous person. Now let me just stop right here and say. When he calls Ishbosheth a righteous person. It doesn't necessarily mean that he has a saved soul. He's calling him an innocent person. An innocent person. Ishbosheth did nothing to deserve this cold blooded murder. He was an innocent man. You killed an innocent man. Unarmed. While he was sleeping. In his bedroom. Therefore shall I not. Now, require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? But if I did it to Saul's killer, how in the world do you think you're not going to escape from this unrighteous deed? So, David's response, let me summarize it. One, he once again acknowledges God as the sustainer of his life. I think that's very important because it's as if Rechab and Bana was saying, "Look what we did for your life. Look how we established your throne. Look how we sustained you by killing Ishbosheth." And David says, "Wait a minute. As the Lord lives, He's the one who's redeemed my life from all adversity." He's the one who's protected me. He's the one who has established me. He's the one who has sustained me. He is expressing trust in God alone. He never once thought he needed to act unrighteously or unfaithfully in order to take hold of the kingship that God had promised them. He waited. He waited. He waited for the Lord to give him the kingdom in his own time and in his own hand. He refused. He refused to take it of his own volition. And then the second response, it's clear, if others have been held accountable for their wicked actions, then what makes them think they would not be held accountable? You see, even though this did actually give David a clear path to the throne, David refused to accept their evil deed, even though it seemed to serve a good purpose. Fact: Ishbosheth's death would lead to the unifying of the kingdom under David. But it's never right, as Bob Jones used to say. It's never right to do wrong in order to do right. It's never right to do wrong in order to do right. So we come to the final verse. Look at verse 12. So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And then they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So this is a scene of justice. Okay. Justice. God is holding them accountable, He is holding the criminals accountable for their evil deed and wicked actions of killing and assassinating ish This was a scene of righteousness that although Saul had made David his enemy, David never made Saul his enemy. Think about this in the implications of our daily lives. Righteousness, righteousness, as Jesus taught us. Blessing them who curse us, praying for them who hate us, turning the other cheek. It's the principle clear here through David. This is the life of Jesus. He is showing us how to live Christian principles. That even though Saul had made David his enemy, David never made Saul his enemy. And so he punished them for their wicked and evil deed. Furthermore, David showed Saul's son as well as Saul's general, Abner, honor by choosing to bury them together. So as we come to the close of chapter 4, we fully recognize that the house of Saul has indeed disintegrated. And the kingdom of Saul has come to an end. Well, what about Mephibosheth? We'll, We'll come to that. So, what do we take away from our time together here in chapter four? Let me give you three things to think about and we'll close with this. Number one, I said it earlier, let me remind us again that you can neither advance nor prevent the kingdom of God by human means. You can neither advance or prevent the kingdom of God by human means. All right, number two. Unrighteous actions always bring destructive consequences. Unrighteous actions always bring destructive consequences. In other words, sin cannot go unpunished. And what's the gospel implication of that? Jesus? There is not a sin that you and I have ever committed. That cannot go unpunished. God is not going to overlook our sin. None of it. Past, present, or future. I'm glad for this time of our children here in the auditorium with us on Wednesday nights. The kids, I, I want you to understand that every little sin, every lie, e- e- everything that you may steal, every bad attitude against authority, mom and dad, teachers, whoever, all the little, those are sins that God must punish. He must punish them. David could not overlook what these two brothers had done. They had done unrighteousness. They had done wickedly. They had sinned. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ on Calvary took the punishment for us. He endured it. He died on the cross bearing our punishment. It's why we trust him. It's why we put our faith in him. It's why we understand that I cannot be right with God in my own goodness. I am right with God by looking at Jesus Christ in faith because he has taken on my punishment. This is the message of the gospel. God will judge sin. Every sin will be punished. And it's either punished on your behalf in Jesus or it will be accounted to your soul for all of eternity, separated from God in hell. Here's the final thing I want us to take home tonight, and that is to simply love righteousness more than you love success. Love righteousness more than you love success. And remember, success to God can look like failure to us. Success to God can look like failure to us. I've all these men, Rechabana, why isn't David doing anything? Let's help him out. Let's make him successful. Let's do what we can to secure the throne for him and then we'll live. Remember when Peter drew the sword in the garden of Gethsemane, thinking he was helping the Lord out, and Jesus rebuked him. We see several examples of this throughout the Scriptures The important part is that we are to love righteousness and godliness and holiness more than we are success and remembering that success to God may look like failure to us. Well, I leave that with you to think about tonight and throughout the remainder of your week, but I cannot help but to pause once more as we look to these narratives in Samuel. And think of the awesome wonder and plan of God. It is truly significant that His ways are higher than our ways. They're beyond our understanding. Be yet in every aspect of our life as it was with David. He is doing thousands of things as Piper says. Fulfil his perfect purposes in and through us. may we yield to that and trust him and not man. I stand together for prayer.